You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scottsdale. So glad to see all of you here this morning live. Those of you who are watching us online, we're so thankful that you've been able to join us as you've invited us into your homes. And if you can, we'd love to invite you into our home and come and join us on a Sunday morning in a great faith family as we celebrate together our risen Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's great to have you. Well, my ministry began um, as an intern in a church in Denham Springs, Louisiana, and then I was a student pastor, but in 1992, I had my very first opportunity to be called to serve as a senior pastor. I went to a little church called Bethel Baptist Church in Graceville, Florida, and I had no experience at that point of being a senior pastor. Matter of fact, I only had two sermons in my repertoire during that time, and one of the sermons I used for the pulpit search committee to call me on staff there. So I only had one good sermon left, but I was excited about the ministry there in this little peanut farming community, and I was looking forward to learning to love people and to lead people well. And I was very excited. So we got there and we started doing a work there and the church started growing pretty quickly. We started reaching a lot of folks in the community. People were joining every Sunday. I was so excited about it. I was so excited about studying and praying and counseling and preaching and sharing the gospel with people. But what I didn't know was that I was gonna be required to wear a number of other hats in that small little church. For example, I was also the custodian. It was my responsibility every Sunday morning to turn on the heat or the air, and it was also my responsibility as a custodian to make sure that all the mouse traps that had caught a mouse were emptied and the mice were outside of the church. I did that every day. It was also my responsibility to be the maintenance director of the church. Uh, I didn't know that. We lived in a little parsonage across the street from the church, which a parsonage means the house belongs to the church and the church never does anything to take care of the house that you're living in. And every single room was a different color carpet. In the bathroom, there were mushrooms growing on the floor in the carpet. That's right, carpet in the bathroom. And so we had to remodel that. Chris and I had spent a lot of time maintaining all of that. But I was also the worship director because I had to pick out all the songs every week and lay out the whole order of service. And then when I did that, I gave that to my secretary, who was me. (laughs) And I had to type them all up and put them in a bulletin. And then I had to run the copies off for the services, 250 copies every single Friday afternoon. Then I'd bring them home and Chris and I would have a bulletin folding party every Friday night. And this went on and on and on. At first I thought, you know, it's just the requirements of ministry. But then I began to really be resentful of that. Thinking this is not what I signed up for. And it all came to a head when I had to run 250 copies one Friday afternoon. We had a copier that was about the size of a dinosaur. I mean, it's huge. It took up this big room. It could collate, it could staple. The problem is it was broken and it did none of those things. And I had to run 250 copies. But the problem is the buttons on the the machine that you can set to how many you can run did not work. And I had to run them 
one at a time. 250 times I had to push that button. And I'm standing over that copier and I'm pushing and I'm pushing and I'm pushing. Then all of a sudden my flesh begins to rise up within me and I started to say to myself, I am the pastor. I am the pastor. I am the pastor. And I was just letting that flesh boil up over and I was angry. And every time I did that, the Holy Spirit reminded me, you are my servant. You are my servant. You are my servant. And that was a defining time in my life as a leader and as a child of God. The greatest title I can have is that I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's true of every one of us. You don't have to be a pastor to have that title. You don't have to be an associate pastor. You don't have to be a a teacher of a class not just a volunteer, as a child of God, everywhere we go, we are called to be servants of Jesus. That's the greatest thing we can be because when you and I serve like Jesus, we're more like him than any other time. But let me tell you, there's some pitfalls whenever you serve because here's the thing, servanthood sounds good when I choose to do it. Servanthood sounds good when it fits my schedule. Servanthood sounds good when it's not messy and dealing with the brokenness of people. But you know what I don't like? I don't like being treated like a servant. I don't like it when people expect me to be a servant. And then what happens is we find ourselves falling in some areas where we actually are working at cross purposes to God's work in our lives. You see, serving God seems noble. Serving people feels like we're being used. Serving God, you can look at the rewards that come with that. Serving people, sometimes there are no benefits and there are no dividends. Serving God begins to be seen in his eyes and maybe all of heaven. But sometimes when we serve people, nobody else knows it. And when you and I allow the downside of servanthood to impact us in a negative way, then we are no longer functioning like Jesus. We've been in a series called Who's That? This morning, we're gonna look at uh, an individual in the Old Testament that is mostly unfamiliar with everybody in this room. In fact, you probably don't even know how to pronounce his name. But he's caught right in the middle of a very famous passage in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapters four and five. And he's caught up in this passage where five incredible miracles take place. Yet this servant that we're going to look at today is an incredibly poor example of how you and I should serve. So if you have your Bibles open to 2 Kings chapters 4 and 5, or if you have your devices, scroll to there. If you're at home watching, you can go ahead and do that. Or if you don't have that, just turn attention to the screens. We'll have the scriptures today. But we want to look at this servant of one, a great prophet named Elisha. Now, Elisha is the prophet who was a servant of Elijah. And when Elijah was taken up to heaven, Elisha received the calling and the responsibility of being the next great prophet. But Elisha has a servant, and the servant's name is Gehazi. Gehazi. Now, we don't know how Elisha found Gehazi, 
We don't know what the process was for Elisha to secure a servant. Maybe they had a, a Hebrew form of indeed or LinkedIn. I don't know. But he found Gehazi. And Gehazi is this servant of Elisha. And everything seems to be fine, but what we end up finding when Gehazi's life is underneath the surface of his servanthood are some attitudes that are creeping up. And he finds himself falling into four pitfalls, four negative areas of his life that actually destroys his service for God. What I want us to do today is to look at it from the perspective of Gehazi and God's word and see what some of those pitfalls are. So we turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 11, but let me set the stage for you. Israel is under an incredible spiritual decline. The the spiritual decline in Israel is so bad, all the kings that are being um, um, put into service during that time are wicked kings. There's a moral bankruptcy in that culture. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And then we see it declining. We see Elisha and Gehazi are traveling across the country and they're, they're preaching the word of God. Great miracles are happening. They go to this little place called Shunem and they meet a Shunammite woman who's very wealthy and whose husband's very old. And every time they go through there, she puts him up and feeds him. So she decides to build a little chamber on the rooftop for Elisha. And the Shunammite woman uh, um, furnishes that little chamber with a bed, with a table and a lamp and a chair. And so Elisha and Gehazi are going through the area And they encounter her in chapter four, beginning verse 11. It says, and one day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there, meaning Elisha. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shunammite. When we had called her, when he had called her, he stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all of this trouble for us. What is it to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, no, I dwell with my own people. In other words, no, everything's good. I don't need anything. I'm dwelling with my own family. We're wealthy. Everything's taken care of. And then it goes on. And he said, Elisha is speaking to Gehazi. And he says, what is to be done for her? So he's asking Gehazi his opinion. She's taken care of us. She's done all of these wonderful things. Gehazi, what do you think we should do for her? And Gehazi answered. And he said, well, she has no son and her husband is old, which means she's probably a younger woman. She's married to a very old man. I want to tell you, when the scripture tells us some descriptions of people, that means that when it says a person is beautiful, they're really beautiful. When it says he is well-built and handsome, he is well-built and handsome. When it says he is old, he is old. Her husband was probably so old that when he was a boy, the Dead Sea was only sick. I mean, this was, he is old. And there is no son. And he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway of the chamber. Elisha's probably sitting on the bed. She's standing in the doorway. And then Elisha says to her, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, oh man of God, do not lie to your servant. Now, probably she has prayed for a son for years and years and years. 
And now she's saying, please don't, don't, don't trick me. Don't, don't get my hopes up. Don't lie to me. But the woman conceived and she bore a son. About that time, the following spring, as Elisha has said, an incredible miracle takes place. Gehazi, his servant, is the one who recommends, hey, what about a son? And Elisha calls her in and says, hey, we're going to give you a son. And it comes to pass. And Gehazi must have been thinking, man, this is so cool. Elisha asked my opinion. I gave him the answer. And now there's a miracle based upon what I recommended. You know those little stickers at the gas pump right now of Joe Biden pointing to the, 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 the thing and says, I did that? You can imagine Gehazi, if he would have had those, he would have had them all over the house. I did that. I did that. He was excited about it. So many years pass, okay? They're going along, and then a little boy grows up. And when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, my head, my head, probably a stroke, and because of severe headaches. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. The child she never asked for, but the child that was promised to her by a man of God came to fulfillment, and now he's dead. Heartbreaking. But then the next verse. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him, and she went out. This is really odd. She went to the chamber where Elisha stays. She took that lifeless body of her son and laid him on the bed and then she left. Why would she do that? It's interesting that she brought him there and here's why. That was the place where she was given the promise. Elisha was probably sitting on the bed as she stood in the doorway and he made the promise that she would have a son and it came to be. So what did she do? She took that son and she laid him on the bed representing that she is bringing him to God. And if God wants that promise to be fulfilled, he is powerful enough to resurrect that seemingly dead promise. Some of you are carrying some dead promises. And you're carrying these things around. Maybe it's a hope that you felt the Lord had put into your heart. Maybe it's a promise that you felt like he's given to you. Maybe it's something that you have been dreaming towards and it seems to be dead. And maybe the Lord is saying, quit carrying that dead thing. You cannot resurrect it. Only I can. Bring it to me. Bring it to me. Lay that down before me and watch me do an incredible work of resurrection that you can never do. And some of you are carrying around dead things that God has no intention to resurrect. And he wants you to leave it at his feet. And if he chooses to do something with it, it is his sovereign will. But sometimes we carry dead things that we ought not ever carry because God never intended us to have that thing alive in the first place. Either way, bring it to him. And that's what she does. Then notice the next thing. She called her husband and said, send me one of the servants off to, uh, and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said to her, why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon or Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey, 
And she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slack, slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel, 18 miles away. She gets on the back of a donkey. She tells her servant, hey, you press me as hard as you can press me. I'm not going to slow down. But if I can't keep up, I will let you know. For 18 miles, about four hours of hard riding. And it goes on. And when the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there's a Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. Here's what's interesting. She never told her husband that her son died. She never told her servants that the son died. She didn't tell Gehazi that her son died. Why? Because she's making sure that the one person who hears it is the one who represents the voice of God, that in a sense, she is bringing her request directly to him. Let me tell you what I thought about this week and that. How many times do we go tell everybody else our problems, but we don't go to Jesus first? How many times do we go tell everybody else our struggles, but it seems to be that the Lord is the last one to hear us plea and call out to him? We should always go to him first. Then we can go to others and ask them to pray on our behalf and join with us bringing it before the Lord. And that's what she does. But when she gets there, here's what happens. She came to the mountain of the man of God and she caught hold of his feet. This was an unusual act. Women were never allowed to touch a man in public that was not her husband in that way, nor a man, a woman in public in that manner. She caught hold of him and Gehazi came and he to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone for she is in bitter distress and the Lord has hidden it from me and he's not told me. Now here's this woman who's broken. She's ridden four hours on the back of a donkey as hard as she can to bring her request to the Lord. And she is bitter in spirit. And when she comes into that room, what does Gehazi do? He pushes her away. He's so insensitive to her needs that the only thing he can think about was the ministry at hand. Only think about protecting his master. But he overlooked the needs of this woman who was before him, who was broken. Here's the first pitfall of servants. And when we are involved in servanthood, we can care more about our ministry than we care for people. We can care more about our ministries than we care for people. Gehazi was so concerned about the strategy and, and probably his schedule and all the things that they were going to be doing. He was concerned about protecting his time with Elisha, his master. He couldn't have this hysterical woman coming into where they're staying and upset everything. He pushed her away. You know, Gehazi's not the only one who did that. Think of the disciples. They did that regularly with Jesus, didn't they? Remember the little children in Mark chapter 10 are coming to Jesus with their moms and the disciples rebuke them and try to drive them away. And what does Jesus say? He says, let the little children come to me for such is the kingdom of God. We find in another time in John chapter 12, a woman comes in and she is, her name is Mary and she's broken. She's in anguish. She breaks this alabaster jar full of very expensive perfume, pours it all over the feet of Jesus. Everybody is condemning her and Jesus uses the exact same words that Elisha used. He says, leave her alone for she is preparing my burial. And when Jesus is always with sinners, 
tax gatherers. People were always complaining of the kind of people that he was with. But the thing that Jesus reminds us of is this. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he says, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus was always about people. He was about people over ministry. His ministry was people. And let me tell you, sometimes... We want to put our ministry before people. Why? It's so much easier to do ministry in a calendar than it is to do with people who are unpredictable. You know what I noticed? People's crises never fit my calendar. You know what I also noticed? People never die according to my schedule. People are never hurt at the most appropriate times. And people or messy, because when we get involved in ministering to people, then it changes my schedule, it changes my agenda, it changes my approach. And sometimes we can be like that missionary that I met in a Papago Indian reservation in 1977. Here's what she said to me. She said, I'd be a great missionary if it wasn't for these Indians. <laughs> and sometimes we think, wow, we'd be great servants if it wasn't for people. Some time ago, I was speaking with a young pastor who I asked him, I said, if you could do anything in ministry, how would, what would you want to do and how would you do it? He said, if I could do any, anything in ministry, I want to build a machine. I said, what do you mean? He said, I'd build a machine, strategies, schedules, systems, and I'd put all these people to work and I'd sit back and I would just tweak it and let it run. And I said, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus build a machine? No, he built people. Did Peter build a machine? No, he built people. Did Paul build a machine? No, he built people. And sometimes the danger with ministry is this. We can love the ministries of the church so much that we don't take time ourselves and the broken people around us. You know what? We'll let the student ministry do that. Wow, they do a great job. We'll let the children's ministry do that. Wow, they do a great job. We'll, we'll let the college ministry do that. They do a great job. We'll let our outreach ministry do that. They do a great job. But next door to you may be a single mom that we will never hear about. And God's calling you to get involved in her life or a single dad or maybe somebody who's a widow or a widower who needs our help. Because let me tell you, ministry always costs. Servanthood is always driven by the needs of people in the moment. Last Sunday evening, afternoon, I was tired Somebody gave me a note that someone was suffering and was only a few hours away maybe from death and I got home, ate a bite, went to that house, got to be with the family. Family members are here today. And Mr. Hank, whom I went to visit, passed away a few days later. And if I was too busy, I never would have had an opportunity to pray with him and the family and to bring the kind of comfort that they needed at that moment. We're about people. This church needs to be about people. Your calling as a child of God is to be about people and loving them the way Jesus loves them. So let me go on. He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. 
If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. So he gives Gehazi an opportunity. He says, Gehazi, here's the thing. I want you to go. You take my staff. You get to be the one to put it on his face and pray or whatever it is that he's instructing him to do and the child will rise. Well, the Shunammite woman didn't have that same confidence in Gehazi. The mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, Elisha, I will not leave you. So he, Elisha, rose and followed her. So they went off together. So Gehazi's on his way. What happens with Gehazi? He went ahead and he laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and he told him, the child has not awakened. Elisha, I've done exactly what you wanted me to do. Nothing happened. Then Elisha shows up on the scene and he came into the house and he saw the child lying dead on his bed. And so he went in and he shut the door behind him the two of them, and he prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and he lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and he walked once back and forth into the house and went and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Great miracle. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, Elisha, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, Elisha's feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Here's the point. Elisha sends Gehazi to do this miracle. He doesn't do it. It doesn't work. Elisha walks into the room. He takes over. The child is risen. The mom comes in, and she falls at the feet of Elisha. Now, Gehazi did everything he asked him to do, but he failed. And this isn't the only time. We find just a little bit later to go to the school of the prophets and Elisha says to Gehazi, hey, go make some stew for the prophets. Well, they put poison in the stew, poisonous herbs, and Elisha had to come behind him and heal the stew. And then a man brings 20 loaves of bread for the sons of the prophets to feed them, and there are over 100 of them. And Elisha says, Gehazi, take the bread, go feed the people. And he pushes back and says, no, 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 no. This isn't enough bread to feed everybody. And Elisha pulls a Nike on him. He says, just do it. And he does it and there's a miracle. And here's the thing that we see surfacing under a servant who finds themselves under the shadow of someone greater. We can feel used and unappreciated when we serve in the shadow of others. Isn't that true? Gehazi is getting to the point, does he feel used and unappreciated? Everything he's doing doesn't work. Elisha has to come behind him and bail him out. And every time Elisha gets all the credit. You know, there are a lot of times when we serve in ministry and when we serve other people that we can feel used and unappreciated. Maybe you're serving in a place where nobody sees you. And you don't get any pats on your back. Nobody sends you a card that says, we can't do this without you. Nobody's over there praising you and recognizing you. In fact, you're working behind the scenes and somebody else is getting the credit. Maybe you have a job that somebody else is getting the credit for your hard work and you're feeling used and unappreciated. You see, the thing that we have to guard our hearts in when we serve is why we do it. 
And if we're serving only to get recognition, and if we're serving to get pats on our back, or if we're serving for the purpose of people to praise us, then those things are going to be the driving things that cause us to do what we do. And when you're serving, there will be a time when you will feel used and unappreciated. But here, take heart. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says when we get to these places. He says, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Listen, here's the great news. When you're serving the Lord Jesus and you're serving for his glory and for his honor, people will forget you. But Jesus never will. He never will. And we're serving for the right reason not for the recognition of men, but for the pleasure of our Savior, then there will be a day when we stand before him and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And I believe that when we get to heaven one day, there will be those unnamed saints whose rewards are gonna be so incredibly great because they served behind the scenes faithfully, all of their life and the rewards that they have are so greater than those who have held top positions because of their servanthood. I would say this, be careful when you serve. Even when you start to feel unappreciated, remind yourself of this, who am I serving? It is the Lord Jesus. And my love for him is the overflow of my service to others. And that keeps me intact. Now we come to chapter five. Naaman, a great Syrian commander, has leprosy. Jeff preached about this on the first of this series. And then what happens, this little girl, a Jewish girl, tells Naaman about a great prophet who can heal. So Naaman goes to the king and says, can I go? And the king gives him letters and he says, yes, go. Find this great prophet. And so what does he do? He finds Elisha. And we take it up in verse nine. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, which was Gehazi, saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. So Gehazi goes and he tells Naaman this, Hey, just go wash seven times in the Jordan and you'll be clean. How does Naaman respond? He was angry and he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He goes on. He says, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in rage. Again, Gehazi just did what he was told. He was just a messenger. He says, Naaman, here's what you gotta do. And what does Naaman do? He takes his full wrath out on this servant. Chews him up and down and tells him exactly what he thinks. And there's Gehazi just standing there. Wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm just telling you what Elisha said. Here's the third pitfall. We can be treated with disrespect and resentment by simply revealing truth. When we're servants of God and we're just simply doing what God has called us to do, there are times that people will treat us with resentment and disrespect. 
When you're teaching God's word, when you're speaking truth, there's sometimes people will not like you. I want to tell you, in my 29 years of ministry here, there have been times where I have received some very nasty emails, some very nasty phone calls, some nasty visits. Now, I want to tell you, if anybody emails me and you put your name on that email, I am happy to to read that email. But if anybody sends me a letter or anything that's anonymous, I just want you to know I never read it. When I open up a letter, the first thing I do is see if there's a signature down there. If there's no name, I throw it in the trash. If there's a card and there's no name, I throw it in the trash. Why? I'm not going to spend my time reading the words of a coward. But if you write me a letter and you write me an email and your name is on it, I respect you for that. And I will call you. And we will sit together as brother to brother, brother to sister, and we will walk through the issues for the glory of the kingdom. I promise I will do that. But there have been times where people have not liked what I said. I used to have my name out on a sign in the front, or the church did. It said, Pastor Phil Ortigo. And one time I came up and somebody took the letters and they cleverly rearranged them and the letter said, Phil ought to go. (laughs) I took a picture of it. I thought, that's clever. That's pretty clever. Now, I don't know who did that. Nobody's ever confessed of it, but my name's not out there anymore. But it's not because of that reason. My name's not out there anymore because the church is not about Phil Ortigo. The church is about Jesus Christ. And 25 years from now, people won't remember me, but they better well remember Jesus. But what I'm saying is this, there are times when you're going to be the servant of God and you're going to speak truth and people are going to come at you, especially in this culture that we're living in. You speak to people about biblical truth and absolute truth, they will come at you because of the morally relativistic society that we live in. If you speak to people about what God's word says about sexual purity and marriage, people will come against you and try to counsel you. When you speak truth about um, issues of lifestyles or just issues of the lostness of people and their need for Jesus Christ, they will come against you. And what you need to understand is as a servant of God, there are times that people will resent what you stand for. And they're not attacking you. Remember this. They're always coming after the truth of the word of God. And so as a servant, be careful not to be so taken in by that that it causes you to seek speaking truth. Continue to do it. So what happens next? But his servants came near to him and said to him, he has some wise servants, Naaman. My father, it is great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, wash and be clean. Very simple. Dip seven times and you're clean. There's nothing hard about that. So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in a Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman was so impressed. What happened was God converts Naaman into a follower of his. 
And Naaman goes back to Elisha and offers him clothing and gifts and gold and silver and all of this. And Elisha says, no, 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 no. We're never going to take that. No, I don't want any of your gifts. He said, well, can I at least take some dirt from here? Two mules full of dirt so I can bring them back to Syria. And when I worship, I'm going to worship the true God on the ground that he spared my life. He said, sure. So he does that. And so Naaman is going back to Syria, but in Gehazi, wow, something has happened underneath his his heart. Here's what it says. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God said, see, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. I'm going to get something out of this. I have been serving this guy for all this time. We've been living on a shoestring budget. This guy has come and offered this. Man, this is a great deal. Elisha can't see it, but I see the benefit of it. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there have been just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. He just lied. He made this up. And when, next, and Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him, and he tied up two talents of silver in the bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away and they departed. And he went in and he stood before his master and Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. That ain't good. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence a leper like snow. Here's the thing that every servant needs to guard their heart for. We need to watch out for hidden greed. You see, when we serve, we have opportunities to influence people. And when we influence people, we have to ask the question, am I influencing them for my good or for the good of the kingdom? Why am I influencing them? Is it for the glory of Christ? It's for my own. Naaman goes out, I mean, uh, 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 Gehazi goes out and he's a leper for the rest of his days. The next time we see him is in chapter eight. And you know what he's doing? He's talking about the miracles of Elisha. Why? Because he's no longer involved in the work of the kingdom. His heart has become corrupt because what he did was he used his position for his own gain. Let me just say this, servants, and if I could say anything, there are pastors all across this land today who are using their positions for their own gain. Every week I hear of some pastor having to step down because of sexual immorality. And when you begin to dig in it, what it is, it's sexual abuse where they're using their position to groom women for their own sexual passions. And they're destroying and undermining the work of the church. 
And then there are volunteers who do the same thing. And we're seeing that across the board. I've seen pastors who have used churches as just a stepping stone so they can get to the next level of fame and money. I've seen people who have done so many different things in the church to try to gain reputation for themselves. And the thing we must always guard against as we're servants of God is why am I doing it? It's for his glory. It's not for mine. So how do we tie all this together? How do we say as servants, we make sure we protect our hearts that we don't fall in these pitfalls? Let me give you one verse in closing. Jesus says this in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's our model. The Lord Jesus is our model because he perfectly lived this. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. And when you take this, you have a beautiful definition of what servanthood is. Let me put it this way. Servanthood is willfully laying down your rights and your privileges in order to serve others through giving of yourself. That's what Jesus did. He did that for you and me. He laid down his rights and his privileges as the son of God, took on human flesh, came here for the purpose of serving us by giving of himself on the cross. And as a result of his servanthood, you and I can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that is to be the model of your life and my life. We're to live in such a way that we're willfully laying down our own rights and our privileges to serve others through giving of my time, of my treasures, of my giftedness. And it begins in the church as we serve together. One of our core values at Scott's Hill is that we love one another through serving but it never stays within the body. It goes outside and everywhere we go, we become the aroma of Jesus Christ to a lost world and that we're willing to alter our schedules. We're willing to alter our rights and our privileges. We're willing to lay these things down so that we can impact them with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's the greatest need of the world. Don't be a Gehazi. Don't think more of ministry than you do of people. Don't be a Gehazi. Don't be in the mindset of feeling used and unappreciated because people don't give you recognition. Don't be a Gehazi in the sense that you're scared to share anything because of the resentment that people might have towards you. Don't be a Gehazi. Don't use service for your own good, but always for the good of others. If you're here this morning as a believer, that's the challenge for us, is to live like Jesus lived. It's really simple. And if you're not a believer, the challenge today to you is to come to the Lord Jesus Christ who served you well on the cross and is still in service to people today as he gives of himself. As we walk through this together, we can learn what God wants us to be 
and servanthood. One of my favorite stories told by Chuck Swindoll was a story of a little boy named Chad. He's in third grade. Chad was one of those little kids that nobody really liked. He was kind of a social outcast of the other kids. His mom would watch him every day. He'd go to the bus stop and all the kids would hang together and there would be Chad by himself, just by himself. They're all talking and laughing and Chad just stood there listening on. They'd all get on the bus and at the end of the day, they'd get off the bus and all this group hanging together, laughing and joking and Chad just walking behind him by himself, always by himself. One day he went to his mom. He says, mom, we're having a Valentine's Day party next week at school and I want to make a handmade Valentine for every kid in my class. His mom's heart sank because she knew what that meant, that he's gonna make all of these and Chad probably won't get a single card but he was intent on it. So he set up all the stuff on the table. He painstakingly, meticulously created every little card, wrote a different note for every little kid. On that day, he packed them all up, put them in a little paper bag, and he was off to school. And as he was going off to school, his mom thought, when he comes home, he probably won't have a single card. So I'm gonna make him his favorite cookies. And sure enough, she made the cookies and she's looking out the window. All the kids get off the bus and they're all hanging together and they're walking away and Chad is by himself. And she said she noticed that he was walking a little faster than normal that day. And he walked into the house and when he opened the door, his mom was standing there and he looked at her. He said, not a one, not a one. And she went down to hug him and he turned around. He said, I didn't forget a one. When Jesus went to the cross, he didn't forget a one. He didn't forget you. And as servants of Jesus Christ, we need to be like him, where our hearts are so open for the brokenness of people that we make time because we may be the only gospel and the Jesus that they ever see. The charge today is to be a faithful servant, not like Gehazi, but like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the pictures that you give us in Scripture. Take what is shared today, Holy Spirit, and burn it into our hearts, whatever it is, that when we leave here today, we'll never be the same. For some, it's just simply to say, I want to serve more. Lord, help me to be conscious of my schedule. Help me to be sensitive of the broken people who might be clinging at my feet. Help me to share the truth regardless of how they feel and respond. May I be your servant today as I faithfully serve others around me. And Father, I pray for those today who are not believers that they would see what Jesus has done for them. And through his kindness, that they would come to repentance and give their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.